to another Mad Philosophy Podcast episode. Today is May 27th, 2018, and Bitcoin is currently trading at 1 Bitcoin to 7,293 United States dollars. Today is the follow-up episode to a couple episodes ago when we were talking about the maxim perception is reality and its context within Aristotelian and Kantian philosophies of the past. Since we got all the groundwork and, and kind of preliminary exposition to those ideas out of the way last episode, this coming half hour is going to focus primarily on a deep dive into those ideas and a contrast between uh, the different things that we covered in the last episode, and then ultimately kind of a punchline that just dictates my own personal approach to understanding the maxim, perception is reality. As I mentioned before, this is a commissioned podcast episode. Somebody I know out on the internet very graciously offered some Litecoin in exchange for a couple podcast episodes just to kind of get them up to speed and give them a starting place to discuss these ideas. Originally, I posted a philosophy checkpoint meme on Facebook, which consisted of just asking people to state their most outrageous philosophical positions. And perception is reality is one that came up. And after a very brief bit of Socratic dialogue, we realized that there was a lot of grounds here for a brief lecture. So that's where we're going. Without further ado, we'll just do a really quick recap of last episode. We talked about naive realism. The idea that basically whatever you see is real, whatever you taste is real, whatever you touch is real, that there's a direct conduit between reality and the mind in that if I look at a giraffe and I see a giraffe, I see its fur and I see its spots and I see its long neck, and if I smell its nasty, ammoniated filth that it rolls around in and such and the the dust that it it tends to get covered in and all that kind of stuff. If, if, if I perceive the giraffe in this way, it is safe to assume that all of those things that I see and smell actually exist out there in the world, and that what my brain is doing is creating a facsimile or a copy of that giraffe in my mind. This is a position that was originally outlined by Aristotle, kind of taking into account a bunch of different ideas that had preceded him in ancient Greek philosophy. Skipping ahead several hundred years, as a matter of fact, over a millennia later, we are looking at the Cartesian skepticism that emerged, where Descartes, through his, his approach to skepticism, tried to eschew any idea and any thought, any, any concept that could not be proven to be necessary in and of itself and see what was left. He ultimately eschewed the belief in everything except for the existence of his own mind. And then through discovery or rediscovering the existence of his own mind, managed to argue for the existence of something similar to the Christian God of the time, and through God then managed to get the rest of the universe out. However, in this whole process, he ended up setting up a dichotomy between the mind and reality. This is what's known as Cartesian dualism. 
And this Cartesian dualism set up a lot of epistemic and phenomenological problems in the realm of philosophy. We could no longer be certain that what we see and touch and taste and feel, the phenomena that we experience, actually comported to a reality outside of our minds. As such, we couldn't necessarily be sure that any ideas that we had, any knowledge that we had, comported to a reality outside of our own minds as well. So this Cartesian skepticism set the groundwork for what later became transcendental realism, which is another vocabulary word. This is a reference to Immanuel Kant's philosophical framework. Immanuel Kant then set up this framework wherein we have the noumenal realm and the phenomenal realm. Noumenal realm was the actual real world that may or may not exist out there, and the phenomenal realm is the realm of our experiences, the realm that exists in our mind. So, in, in effect, there's a phenomenal realm that comports to each individual's phenomenological experience. So there's a phenomenal realm in my mind, and assuming your mind exists, there's a phenomenal realm that exists in your mind, and assuming anybody else exists, a phenomenal realm would exist in their minds as well, and these phenomenal realms would put together all the different sense perceptions and ideas and thoughts that these people had, all of the phenomena, into a worldview that may or may not reflect a world outside of themselves, the noumenal realm. This is where you hear people talk about the thing in itself and how you cannot know the thing in itself. Like I said last week, there's a microphone in front of my face. However, the reason I can make this assertion is simply because I have the phenomena, the phenomenological experience of a microphone in front of my face, and I'm just guessing that those phenomena reflect something in the real world, but there's no way to transcend that gap between me and the world outside of my mind. Ayn Rand came onto the picture a bit later, after Immanuel Kant, and Ayn Rand kind of brought back Aristotelian philosophy in a sort, certain flavor of her own, took Thomas Aquinas and some of the later thinkers in the Thomistic tradition and went all the way back to Aristotle, compared and contrasted the original work against the inheritors of that work later on, and basically came up with Aristotle's naive realism, but with a, a certain approach that allowed for flawed sense perceptions, taking into account all the different ways in which Descartes and later thinkers pointed out that the senses may not always be reliable. She talks about drug-based experiences, about ways, uh, optical illusions, things like that. She wasn't primarily concerned with those issues, but she did bring them up periodically in her nonfiction works. So that's kind of just a philosophical recap of those different philosophical positions throughout history and a, a contrast between these different ideas and their common source material. So one of the words that I, I used in this overview, this recap, is epistemology. If you remember from last episode, epistemology is basically the study of knowledge. How do we know what we know? Historically, the word that was best, or the definition that was best applied to knowledge, despite some apparent shortcomings, would be a justified true belief. Uh, justified true belief simply means I believe something, I have a justification for believing it, and it just so happens to comport to reality. In Aristotle's case, a justified true belief could be there is a giraffe over there. A giraffe has fur. A giraffe has a long neck. Here are all these other essential qualities of a giraffe. That thing I see over there matches the essential qualities that we've listed as a taxonomy for a giraffe, and so therefore a giraffe exists over there. And so long as there's actually a giraffe there that other people can see and stuff, then we can say that's knowledge. It's a justified true belief that there is a giraffe over there. 
when we're looking at Kant and Descartes, we have a little bit of a problem because, again, there's no way to divide or no way to transcend that mental uh, phenomenal realm and get access directly to the noumenal realm. However, Kant has a certain pragmatic angle to him wherein he starts outlining what ultimately becomes Mises' basis for the action axiom and its corollaries. The idea then is I have an experience, the phenomena, of being hungry, and I have previously experienced the phenomena of eating and the subsequent lack of that hunger. And so I can imagine for myself alleviating the phenomena of hunger by engaging in the phenomena of eating food, etc. So even if there is a noumenal realm outside of my mind that does not comport to reality, I can still deal with my own personal issues by way of action, human action. So even in the Kantian realm, then, I can have a justified true belief that I feel hunger, and if I want to not feel hunger, I ought to eat something. And Rand, of course, just eschews that Kantian framework, that Cartesian framework, and goes directly back to Aristotle and simply says, if I'm hungry, I should eat because when I was hungry before, I've eaten and I felt better, right? Rand also primarily focused on action. There is one quick side note that I need to make about our definition of knowledge as justified true belief, and that would be that the postmodern angle of philosophy, the, and everything that's come after the modernist phase, which, which terminates around the end of the Enlightenment period, postmodernism as a response to this Enlightenment era thinking, the people like Kant and the, the other Cartesians, is to undermine the idea of truth. This idea kind of follows in that Kantian-Cartesian angle whereby we stop worrying about objective reality and objective facts and objective moral features of the universe, and instead we focus on, uh, exclusively on a very egoistic or, or personalistic ethic, whereby we ask, what do we want and how do we get it, and we eschew any external factors that might play into what we want and how we get it. We're going to talk a little bit more about this at the end, but I just want to say for now that we're going to ignore that postmodern attempt at taking down our definition of knowledge as a justified true belief. Ultimately, I'm not interested in that discussion, and it's a discussion that, while it has been had plenty before, I think the, the, well, the science is settled on that matter, and that any responses to postmodernism that you find that are not rooted exclusively explicitly and exclusively in, say, scripture or tradition, present a philosophically robust argument against the postmodern attack on epistemology. One cool thing that comes out of epistemology, and our description of, of knowledge as a justified true belief, and all of these different approaches to trying to understand the world around us through the phenomenological experience, is induction, logic, and pragmatism. Logic can be described as observing all of the side effects of the principle of non-contradiction. Principle of non-contradiction simply states that nothing can both be and not be in the same mode at the same time, right? This 
copper atom over here cannot also be a gold atom at the same time. They are two mutually exclusive states of being. I cannot both be alive and dead at the same time. This computer cannot both exist and not exist at the same time. All of these different things are a consequence of the principle of non-contradiction. And then by following the consequences of that principle of non-contradiction, we can get all of the other, what we call laws of induction, but it's basically how logic operates, uh, formal logic. If this, then that, this, therefore that, if this, not that, that, therefore not this, etc. That logic gives us a basis by which to make arguments that, well, they might not necessarily be true in the same way that we can say, here's a definition of a term, this thing doesn't meet that definition, therefore this thing is not that thing. We, we can also begin to make cases that are not necessarily true, but are circumstantially true, and we can demonstrate the probability of that circumstantially true thing. Uh, for instance, so-and-so murdered so-and-so at this time, at this place with this object, you know. Uh, Colonel Mustard did it in the ballroom with the revolver. And we can go through all of the evidence and determine with a fair degree of certitude that yes, Colonel Mustard did it in the ballroom with a revolver. And this has a certain pragmatic angle to it where Descartes would eschew that argument because you cannot prove the necessity of the fact that Colonel Mustard did it in the ballroom with a revolver. We, we can, however, make a close enough guess that it gives us something with which to navigate the world around us. For instance, we may want to call the police on Colonel Mustard or just not be left alone with him when there's a revolver in the room. This pragmatism and induction also gives rise to what we understand to be modern science, the scientific method. The reason I'm bringing up the scientific method and going through this whole process of getting here is because when we're talking about sense perceptions and phenomenology and the, the world outside of our minds and our minds themselves, inevitably in our contemporary age, we're going to begin talking about light and electromagnetic wavelengths and smell and sound as vibration in the air. We're going to start talking about eye cones in the back of your eye, and we're going to talk about the, the sensitive membranes in the ear that pick up vibrations, and the, the molecular landing sites in the, in the sinus cavity that give rise to smells, and we're, we're going to start talking about touch receptors, the, the nervous system running through the body. We're going to start talking about brain structures and mental states that comport to different brain structures and, and chemical compounds and electrochemical impulses throughout the body, and we're going to get into a very materialistic and biological discussion of how sense perception operates. As this technology advances in the realm of brain science and, and behaviorism, I, I get incredibly excited. It's very fun to learn about the way that, especially in music, because I used to be a musician, I'm still technically working in music, just not playing an instrument anymore, learning about the way that the brain processes that sonic input and the way that the ear operates, the different physical structures and the way they interact with the vibrations in the air so that you can begin to understand the science of music, the mathematics of music and the way that where we can talk about different sounds and we can say, oh, it's, you know, a major scale, a C major scale, you know, C, D, E, F, G, A, B, right? We, we can go through that scale or whatever and we can begin to break down those different 
sonic frequencies and the way that the brain interprets those sonic frequencies and the math contained between those different frequencies and the way that the brain is actually effectively doing math in the background to put all these things together. But to us in the phenomenal realm and the phenomenological experience of the music, we simply hear these different sounds and the feelings that those sounds evoke and we're not explicitly aware of the effectively math going on in the background. This is super exciting, and it does have a lot of a lot of valuable input with regards to our discussion about perception being reality, but at the same time, this is a secondary discussion. The reason I bring it up now is because when we're when we're looking for a robust description of the phenomenological experience as relates to reality, it comes naturally to begin discussing brain structures and icons. And so while it is pragmatic to discuss those things, it's also something that's a second or meta layer discussion of that because we actually have to use phenomenology to be able to get to the science that gives us the ability to then discuss phenomenology with a vocabulary word. It's actually a circular holistic exercise, but that's actually the case for all experiential sciences, philosophy being the first of which. As robust as all of that science is as well, it does not actually give an account for that phenomena just yet either. We have experiments where people will shine laser beams on certain parts of the brain or expose the brain to electromagnetic wavelengths or certain psychedelic chemicals and point out the different chemical state changes that take place in the brain while also being uh, giving a coincidental, a, a thing happening at the same time, a phenomenological account of that experience. You could cut my head open and poke a certain part of my brain with your finger and I could tell you, oh, suddenly I feel X. It's very odd how I have a sudden very uh, extreme sexual attraction to that object over there or whatever. And you could be looking at my brain with an MRI and be like, oh, well, when we poked that center of the brain, there is a huge spike in endorphins and, and adrenaline and in this particular region of the brain. And that's great and all, but that still doesn't explain how exactly those chemicals give rise to the phenomenological experience. So what does this all ultimately mean? When we have Aristotle, he looks at a giraffe and the light reflects off of the giraffe and goes into his eye and activates the eye cones and the nerves send the signal to the brain that the eye cones have been stimulated and the brain then processes all this information with the common sense, putting together the other sense experiences such as the smell and the compounds operating in the brain and such in order to put together a idea of the giraffe, Aristotle's going to simply say, eh, just a copy of the giraffe is living in your brain. Kant gets a little bit more complicated through the Cartesian method and, and Rand kind of simplifies this all again. But ultimately, when we're looking at perception is reality as a maxim, I want to kind of reconfigure this claim a couple different ways and, and look at the way that it might be true and ways that it might be false. For example, we could say that reality makes perception. When Aristotle looks at a giraffe and he, he has the perception of the giraffe, we would say that the giraffe is real. And then the reality of that giraffe creates the perception of the giraffe in the person's mind, which itself exists as a part of reality. My mind is no more distinct from reality as any other part of reality. That rock over there is just as much real as my mind. 
whether my mind is an activity that the brain does or some metaphysical entity that lives in my body or coincides with my body, who knows, right? That's, that's the philosophical discussion that comes out of this initial framework. But we could say reality makes perception. Even in the Kantian framework, he would argue that in the noumenal realm, there exists the things in themselves, and the things themselves give rise to the phenomena of the thing in itself, and we have access to the phenomena. So even, even Kant would agree that reality makes perception then we could also say that perception interprets reality. If I have a phobia of giraffes, and I see a giraffe, I may see it in a very different way than somebody else might. That long neck may seem very uh, intimidating and, and fearful and, and exceptionally long, and um, the, the little ear cone things on top of their heads may go from being just like, oh, those are cute little ears to like being a terrifying alien structure emerging from the head. Reality is still reality. However, my perception can interpret it in a particular way. This this perception is not objective. What I, what I mean by this as well is where I might walk into the office one day and so say, oh, hey, good morning. And I just mean like, oh, I'm engaging in the social pleasantries and I'm trying to be polite or whatever. But maybe something in my body language or maybe something about the particular attitude of the person I'm speaking to at that time of the morning may interpret it as like, oh, good morning. Like somehow I'm upset with them or angry with them. And then it sets up this whole reality in their head that has nothing to do with reality, but that phenomenal realm in their minds is like, well, now he's angry at me. I don't know. I just showed up at work. Maybe I'm late. Maybe I'm early. Maybe he had a bad day and he's just taking it out on me and I'm already off onto the next thing, right? But so, so that's a manner in which perception is not objective, but it also interprets reality around you. One of the things that I like to point to, which may actually become the graphic for this podcast episode, I'll have to find it on my computer, is we have facts about opinions and opinions about facts. If you were to draw a Venn diagram, which is just circles that interlock and shows the interrelationship of different classes of things, you would have two separate circles, one that is facts and one that is opinions. However, each circle, the facts or the opinions, would have a certain little piece carved out that would represent facts about opinions and opinions about facts. So, it is a fact that I do not own a puppy. At the same time, I could have an opinion about the fact that I do not own a puppy. For instance, I am happy that I do not own a puppy. <laughs> However, somebody else might interpret that as like, I hate animals because how dare I not adopt a puppy, right? That's also an opinion about the fact that I do not own a puppy. And this exists everywhere in the world. Every, everybody's mind consists of a hodgepodge of opinions about facts and facts about opinions, and there's a little bit of room left for other things, just knowledge about facts and knowledge about opinions, and not the intersection between the two. This is important, too, when we're discussing ethics. If I were to define ethics in the most robust way possible, I would argue that ethics is basically asking the question, what do I want and how do I get it? Now, initially, this might seem extremely reductivist and might result in a, a flippant response. You know, oh, I want to get laid, therefore rape, right? Something like that. However, 
when you build out an entire framework of different value sets that I have, what do I want becomes a very complicated question with a very complex answer. And it's an answer unique unto me at this point in time. In a few moments, I might have a different set of desires, albeit similar, to right now. And my set of desires is different than anybody else's in the world right now, despite however much similarity might exist between the two. So that's what do I want? And the question about how I get it then is basically juggling all of those different values and prioritizing them and selecting the one that I want to act on the most. For instance, if I want to get laid, the answer might not necessarily be therefore rape because I don't want to go to jail. I don't want to go to hell. I don't want to engage in a behavior which undermines the trust of the society in which I live because I also want to promote the well-being of my children going into the future and their children and their children, etc. And promoting behaviors such as rape does not always play out well when you have four adorable young girls. So perception then gives us the tools to navigate reality. If, for instance, I do not want to be trampled by a giraffe, it would make sense that I would then take into account the perception of a giraffe right over there. It also sets up a case, for instance, in the in the more extreme case of I want to get laid, therefore rape. It gives us the tools to navigate reality in that there might be other better ways of accomplishing my goal that A, require less work, and B, have less negative repercussions about them. For instance, I can perceive a reality in which I have a wife, and that wife may or may not be interested in engaging in uh, marital relations at this point in time. The only way to figure that out would be to explore that reality and perception. And now we come to the final conclusion. If perception is reality, we could say that perception creates reality. This is another feature, this is another holistic feature of the philosophical exercise. How does perception create reality? If I can sit here and believe to myself that a communist utopia is possible, that would not necessarily make a communist utopia possible. However, it has been shown using the sciences that are byproduct of that inductive process, which is a byproduct of the phenomenological experiences, which then gives us the tools by which to describe the phenomenological experience that gave rise to this whole process in the first place. When, when we look at this perception, we, we can say that if I have a perception as an oppressed slave and that everything that has ever happened to me was a, it was a feature of something outside of myself that, over which I had no control, then I'm likely to engage in a set of behaviors which propagates that belief. I'm not likely to take responsibility for my actions. I'm not likely to invest in the future or delay gratification because what's the point? Something outside of me is simply going to continue to oppress and subjugate me. Conversely, if I have an attitude or a perception whereby everything good or bad that has ever happened to me is exclusively a result of my action and that nothing outside of me has ever impacted my behavior and the outcomes therein, I may, I may be a narcissist, first of all, but second of all, I, I may engage in a set of behaviors whereby I believe I can do anything. For instance, start a communist utopia. And that may or may not play out very well, again, because I might not have an accurate representation of reality. So in this, in this particular case, I could argue that the perception that then gives rise to my action does determine the outcome of my future. This is different, of course, than the initial thought that we have when we say perception is reality in a philosophical void, because people would say, oh, so what you see is real. 
So what you believe is real. And it's like, well, not necessarily. But what I see and what I believe can alter the reality in which I exist over time. It was the perception that my wife is attractive that gave rise to my four daughters. It's the perception that I have these four daughters and the perception that I have a moral obligation to do what I can to promote their well-being over time that has made me what I am and has has given me the tool set by which and the motivation by which to delay gratification, to extend time horizons, to engage in this philosophical exercise in the manner that I've begun to engage. So ultimately, I don't know if I could give you any life advice saying, oh, think positively or oh, think negatively or try. I can't even argue that you might want to have an accurate belief about the world. It's been shown that people that have a inordinate degree of self-regard, an inordinate degree of self-confidence actually do engage in behaviors that then make that self-confidence real. Not always, but statistically, it's observable. So, what I've done here is I've outlined a philosophical history and the relationship of different ideas in that philosophical history. We've discussed the ways in which it might be useful or may not be useful. However, I cannot, in this circumstance, take the final step and give you something to do, other than to think long and hard about these recordings and then make a decision for yourself. I can also point you in the direction of some useful works that may also help. As always, I'm going to point you towards Hans Hermann Hoppe. (laughs) I'm going to tell you that you might want to look into his work on the ethics of private property. He, He points out a lot of features of argumentation ethics, which takes a lot of this perception and reality talk and puts it into a concrete logical framework by which we can understand interpersonal relationships and the basis of things like private property norms and the non-aggression principle to which it gives rise. I can also point you towards Ayn Rand's philosophical works. I would recommend that if we're talking about epistemology and phenomenology that you look at her non-fiction works with regards to objectivism as a worldview as opposed to her fictional works which deal more with uh, a kind of Nietzschean understanding of anthropology, of, of the human condition, of what humans can and ought to do. And once you have a little bit more philosophy under your belt, I would also recommend looking into Aristotle's Nicomachean ethics. The reason I suggest that you have a lot more philosophy under your belt before getting engaged is the translations that we have tend to come across as very dry and analytic and dense. There's a lot of vocabulary words involved, but also there is a lot of, I guess you could call it dangerous ideas in the Nicomachean ethics. Uh, I've, I've admitted before that that was my first philosophical work that I read, and I do blame Aristotle for my initial foray into Marxism and communism writ large, based on the initial discussion of the role of the state in crafting virtue in individuals, things like that. However, towards the end of the Nicomachean Ethics, Aristotle gets into a very explicit discussion of the different types of friendship and the benefits and detriments of a good, sound friendship. He talks a lot about perception of things that are less material than a giraffe, for instance, virtue. And in that discussion of perception of virtue, discusses the different human relationships that form around virtue or 
to the exclusion of virtue. And that particular discussion, despite some kind of flimsy metaphysics, actually gives you an excellent tool set by which to navigate interpersonal relationships. Ayn Rand drew heavily on the Nicomachean ethics for a lot of her discussion of friendship and interpersonal relationships. But in this case, I think it would be better to go to the source material itself, the primary source, as opposed to Rand's response to it, given that um, Aristotle to all historical appearances had better interpersonal relationships at his disposal than Rand. If nothing else, he must have been better at implementing those ideas. So with that, carpe veritas, and have a great week. <laughs>